Welcome to Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered with Perry Clark. This program looks at mental health from unique perspectives and shows you how to manage your life by finding the knots that help you and stay away from the ones that could be a disadvantage. Now, here is your host, Perry Clark. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. I'm Perry Clark, licensed marriage and family therapist, and I'm here with uh, in my continuing series from uh, Comic-Con. Now, I just want to remind everybody as a disclaimer that this is a educational and informational podcast and for entertainment as well. This does not constitute working with a mental health professional, and I strongly recommend seeking out a mental health professional in your area to work on your unique issues. So as I said a moment ago, that this is a continuation of what all came from going to San Diego Comic-Con and speaking at the panel. And today's guest, which we have two of them, and this is probably going to be a two-parter episode, uh, were both people that I had a chance to sit on a panel with and sadly missed the other person's panel. But uh, we're definitely getting to talk about their work as well, since Comic-Con was one of our, was what brought us together. And so today's guests are Tara Addison, or sorry, T- Tara Madison Avery, and uh, sorry, I, I can see them on the screen as I'm about to say names. It's making me uh, laugh here. Uh, I, I believe it's pronounced a a Awanja, Awan, Awan, yeah, Mansi, Mans, Okay. So let's start with Tara. So Tara Madison Avery is a cartoonist, editor, illustrator, and publisher of Stacked Decked Press. She was co-editor and publisher of and of and contributing artist in the Ignatius Ignatius Ignatius. Yeah, yeah. Ignatius. Uh, yeah, it's he's a character from from Crazy Cat, a very important comic strip, and uh, gotcha. Now it's named in his honor. So. Gotcha. Award-winning. We're still here, an all-trans comic anthology, and the first book of its kind. Her comics and illustrations work can be found in anthologies such as Anything That Loves, Comics Beyond Gay and Straight, Death Saves, Fallen Heroes of the Kitchen Table, and The Other Side, Trans and Non-Binary Comics. Avery is also the cartoonist behind the webcomics Dirty Heads and Gooch which predominantly features LGBT characters. She is a longtime LGBT activist, having been a board member of the nonprofit organization Prism Comics for over a decade, and as the chair of the Los Angeles Bi Task Force from 2013 to 2015. She was invited to take part in the White House Bisexual Community Briefing. And our other guest, Awan uh, Mason, is... Sorry, is a professor of English at Mills College and an instructor in the illustration and comics programs at California College of Art. Their illustrations and comics have appeared in several collections, including We're Still Here, winner of the 2019 Ignaz Award for Outstanding uh, Anthology, Drawing Power, winner of the 2020 Eisner Award for Best Anthology, Manopause, a comic treatment winning winner of the 2021 Eisner Awards for Best Anthology. She votes for from Chronic Books, uh, COVID Chronicles, a comics anthology, and others. Uh, Juan is the author of the and illustrator of the upcoming Living While Black, Portraits of Everyday Resistance. This summer, their 100 and, or sorry, 1001 Black Men Online sketchbook project was released in book form as 1001 Black Men Portraits of Masculinity at the Intersection from Stacked Press, Stacked Deck Press. So welcome both to Untying Knots. Hello, it's great to be here. It's Thank a pleasure you. To have, have both of you. <laughs> so uh, my standard question is, and we, whoever wants to go first, how did you get here? How did I get here? Um, uh, I guess uh, if we're talking about California. Um, I was in Kansas about what, 14 years ago, and my dad called me up and said, trucking company, the family business was in trouble. I need you to come back to California. Mm. <laughs> so that's how I got back to California. Um, but uh, I've been, if it's how I got to comics, um, it's been, I've been, drawing comics my, my whole life been reading comics ever since I could read and um and uh I've just um I, I think that my I and 
in the mid aughts, you know, around 2005 or so, um, I decided to, you know, after having not drawn a thing for several years, um, uh, just sort of took, just embraced the notion of a web comic. And I did Dirt Heads, which was inspired, which was inspired by the life I guess I was living in Lawrence, Kansas, the Austin of Kansas. And uh, it was about overeducated and underemployed 20 and 30 somethings who live in a college town, some of whom are queer. And so um, it became a, it became kind of a kind of thing. It actually began to attract a, a following. And of course, as soon as it attracted enough people to provide me with any sort of revenue, I moved back to California and started working at my dad's trucking company. So because that's because I'm, I'm smart like that. So here we go. Yeah. Well, you answered. You both answered the call that was before you, but still managed yeah. to make it work for you. Yeah, the joys of web so. comics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The joys of web comics. You can do it from anywhere. That's right. That's right. Hmm. Yeah. And what about for you? Well, um, I, I guess I could say, how did I come to California, and how did I come into doing comics? Um, you know, I'm an English professor. Um, I'm from the Northeast. Uh, grew up on Long Island. Went to high school outside of Albany, New York, upstate. And um, never thought I'd leave the Northeast, but academic life takes you where it takes you. And uh, after grad school at the University of Michigan, I came here in 99. Well, actually first with a stop at Eugene, Oregon for four years of professorship there. Um, and I've been at Mills College since 99. Um, and uh, it was something about being a professor um, that made it really clear to me that art had to be a part of my life. I always describe myself as a lifelong artist and writer. And uh, often tell people that I've been an artist longer than anything, except black. I've been black longer than I've been an artist. <laughs> but mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. about it. Um, and so as I built my academic career, I also started building my art practice. Um, did a lot of painting for many years. Um, and then kind of got into um, the zine community. Um, I went to, I think I must have gone to the San Francisco Zine Fest just as a, uh, as a, um, attendee and just saw this really amazing place where all of these artists came together to create their own work on their own terms and sell it directly to their chosen audiences. And um, and so I started doing an art, um, a series of 1001 Portraits of Black Men, um, which um, grew over the years. I started doing zines of those portraits. I started doing mm-hmm. other kinds of zines, all illustration-based. Um, and then uh, with people like... Um, you know, comic creators like uh, Justin Hall and John Macy and Ed Luce. And, um, you know, in particular, Ed Luce kind of, um, and John Macy explained step-by-step how you do a comic and said, you should do these. Mm-hmm. And so I started doing comics in 2014. And, um, and that's how I met Tara. Mm-hmm. And, um, and here we are today. Um, you know, I've been able to publish a book uh, with Tara. Um, I also contributed to some of Tara's anthologies and um, amazing coloring books and uh, have met comic community that feels, I mean, they feel an awful lot like my people. And um, so it's been really a wild ride. And, um, and I've just really, I love this part of being an artist. Beautiful. Well, why don't we start with uh, some of of the more recent stuff, which was Comic-Con, and then we can talk a bit about Stack Deck as well as your book from there too. So how does that sound? Okay. Sounds good. All right. So what was it? Whoops. Sorry about that, folks. Uh, what was it like for you guys being at Comic-Con and presenting there? Well, for me, you know, I've, I've been, you know, I've been at Comic-Con for quite some time now. This is probably my, I've been there every year. It's been on since 2006. So, and I went for, twice in the nineties. It was a very different show. Mm-hmm. You know, you didn't have the the Hollywood element, um, uh, the same kind of Hollywood uh, influence that you have now. But um, this was in many ways a, a very busy show for me. I, I uh, moderated two panels and appeared on two others, uh, which one of those was with you, Perry, yep. um, one of uh, a Lorraine Garrison's um, mm. uh, chock full of you know, mental health goodies and um, uh, you know neurodivergent and, and uh, LGBTQ insight and uh we did that at the public library which was a first for me um mm-hmm. but i also moderated a panel about lgbtq web comics which i know a little bit about um mm-hmm. and uh and then um uh, we did it uh we brought the trans panel back with the first trans panel in a few years which we'll probably continue to do because that seems to be a popular item and then yeah and i worked uh at the at the booth with prism comics i 
been a board member of PRISM, a uh, 501c3 nonprofit organization that promotes LGBTQ, AIU, Alpha, Beta, Gamma, Rho, comics, comics creators, fandom um, from coast to coast. And, uh, and, um, and so, yeah, part of, we're a working board. We don't, we don't just sit around and say, well, this is what we ought to do. Now you guys go do it. Mm-hmm. We um, you know, are, are rather active and lugging boxes and, and grunting and sweating and doing things like that. So we, uh, yeah, I, I spend a lot of time selling books and, you know, running the register and you know, just sort of being the lifeguard on duty in case anything, you know, anything required a decision from a, uh, uh, an experienced individual. Yes. <laughs> and what about your experience? Cause sadly I would have come to your panel, but we had flown home on Sunday. <laughs> um, you know, I um, started going to Comic-Con in 2010, um, uh, bought tickets as a gift to my partner. Um, it was easy to get tickets back. Uh, um, yeah. And uh, have pretty much gone every year until 2019 um, because I had a family reunion and then I missed a couple of years because of the pandemic. So mm-hmm. it was great to be back. Um, you know, I just, um, even though I don't live at Comic-Con, it's only a week every year. Going mm-hmm. back feels like going back to a really familiar place. And mm-hmm. it was wonderful to see how much it hadn't changed. Um, mm-hmm. And how, uh, you know, the fact that we, you know, I loved the COVID protocols that were there. Um, it mm-hmm. made me feel like, yes, this is my community and it cares about me. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just great to um, connect. We had such a great um, discussion on the panel about uh, queer Black popular culture, queer Black mm-hmm and popular culture the audience was super engaged and um and also you know people show up at comic-con to learn stuff to ask questions to offer their opinions and i found that to still be the case um maybe even more so um both on the panel and during my um signing uh hour at um the prism comics table um you know, I had some great conversations with people, um, even people who didn't buy my book. We had a great mm-hmm. conversation about the project and people were curious and interested. And so um, definitely time well spent. Very and nice. I had 14,000 steps on Sunday alone. So, <laughs> Oh, I know. Yeah, that more than double. That's going to that more than doubles your numbers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my partner and I were very exhausted after that weekend. But if it hadn't been for the panels, I never would have gone as well. It was on my bucket list of things to go and do, let alone present there. Uh, And as Terry, you mentioned Lorraine, uh, I'm sorry, Laurent. uh, Actually, no, she pronounces it. It's weird. She pronounces it Lorraine. I think there was like some sort of, it's like when the name was on the birth certificate, it was one of those little oversights, but Mm -hmm. her name is Lorraine. But yes, it does look like I I was calling her Lauren forever. And then until she finally took me aside and said, it's Lorraine. <laughs> uh, well, she's in our some of my earlier yeah. episodes. You'll find it. Uh, I believe it's episode seven and episode ten. And mm-hmm. then uh, yeah. one, you the the you were one with Sean, who was recently in my my Pride series. Uh, I think that was episode twenty five or twenty four. At this point, now I'm starting to confuse all the numbers. Um, but that was definitely an experience being able to present that uh, varying materials because again, this is media that normally I know when I was growing up, I would never ha- would have had to start high and low just to find. And so, what does it mean to start bringing that type of material more prevalent and being more, shall we say, accepted into environments like this as opposed to being, you know, this out of the way convention or zine? What's that like? Um, I guess I can speak about that. Um, you know, I, um, it's, it's great. It's, um, you know, it's great to be able to find an audience and, um, you know, what I find in something like, um, you know, at Comic-Con and the Comic-Con audience and community intersects with the community I've encountered at things like the LA and San Diego Zine Fests, Mm -hmm. um, San Francisco Zine Fest is, you know, people who are open to story. Um, and, you know, I don't know what Comic-Con was like, say, 25 years ago. Um, I think you could actually get tickets. <laughs> but, um, yeah. but, you know, what I find in my own experience is, um, you know, and I've been pleasantly surprised because when you're an artist, you sit and you make your work and you think, 
this is really important to me. Um, but it's always wonderful to see that actually it resonates with other people. Um, and so people who are open to hearing a new story and being persuaded by some aspect of either what you put into making it or what it looks like it could be and wanting to give it a try. I mean, that's what I think is so great about Comic-Con is you know bringing together all these people who are really interested and willing to stick their toe in the water of the unfamiliar. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, a real appreciation for art um, and, um, you know, or, you know, really appreciating the opportunity to talk to people about, about what they do and, and why. Um, and, you know, someone who's there just to talk about superheroes will show up and say, well, this is not that, but yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. And uh, that openness is, is really, um, I've encountered that, you know, I expect to encounter that at Zine Fest, it's kind of considered alt culture. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I think that, um, you know, I tell other artists that they, you know, you'll find that at Comic-Con uh, San Diego as well. Um, and it's it's really, it matters a lot. Yeah. Well, for you, Tara, especially with the work that you do with PRISM. Well, I guess uh, John Macy, um, you know, Juan mentioned him earlier. He was also at one point a board member of PRISM. And, um, you know, PRISM does several shows a year. And then I do several shows a year representing myself and Stack Deck Press. So um, John described this going from city to city to con- convention to convention as sort of the carny lifestyle where you bring your you bring your banner and you bring your you, you bring your you bring your wares and you you set up and you start you know barking to the crowd here you hear ye we have comics we have comics and um, and uh, so so that is sort of a, an aspect of my life you know I've you know I've been doing this for for some time now you know and uh, you know like this year I will have gone to thirteen different shows which is probably won't do as many next year because they mm-hmm. do take a bit out of you, especially if you work the show. I mean, as you mentioned, 15,000 steps, you know, I mean, you know, that's true. That's, that's we call that being in convention shape, you know, if <laughs> you know, like, like we were, we were all a little surprised at WonderCon this year after having been out of the convention loop for a couple of years that we were exhausted after, after WonderCon, I said, you got to get back into convention shape, you know? And so, but uh, but yeah, it's it is it is even more of a, an endurance contest if you if you are working the convention if you are there for business purposes because you have to be there when the floor opens and you have to stay while the floor closes and um, and you know other these other uh, these other things. But it's also a fantastic thing you get to meet people in different parts of the country and and especially when you represent an LGBTQ organization, you go to places that people might casually describe as flyover country, you know. Um, Kansas City, you know, the place I grew up in in my teens and 20s, you know, um, and you go to a show like Planet Comic Con there, a very nice show, very nice mid-sized show, and um, you put out the LGBT panel and it's packed because you're it. You're the one. You're the one. You, you came from you came from California and you're talking about queer stuff and they all show up and then then they all rush to your table after the panel to, to buy, a, buy a book and say thank you for coming. Um, it is a very nice feeling. Um, you know, that being said, though, most of my um, barnstorming adventures are, are confined to the West Coast, although I did just get back from C2E2, my very first Chicago. Um, I was invited to speak there. I did not table. I did not bring my wares and my shingle. Um, I just brought myself. I brought my 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 uh, my wallet and my comics habit. Uh, um, and so uh, uh, and and. Um, that was, you know, but that is, that is sort of the, it is the carny lifestyle. You're finding new people. You are reaching out. Um, one of the things I like to do is when people come up to me and especially young folks, because young folks and older folks don't always read the same things. are always plugged mm-hmm. into the same things. And, and they say, have you read such and such? It's like, no, tell me about that. Where can I find that? You know, um, it does, it, it helps me ex- um, expand my, my, uh, my perspective. Um, uh, they don't always ask me the same things, which is, you know, you know, that's, but I guess they'll, learn, you know, but they don't probably want to know about little orphan Annie and, uh, <laughs> and wash tubs and captain easy and, and, uh, and, and, and dead bone erotica. But um, I could tell them about that if they wanted. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's kind of the equivalent of what's a rotary phone <laughs> that, yes. we're, that we're seeing with uh, things like stranger things and such. So there were, comics in the newspapers yes yes <laughs> there were newspapers yes there were newspapers you, you've seen you've seen pictures yeah they they have yeah anytime you watch a period piece so to speak yeah. 
yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so why don't we talk a little bit about Stack Deck? Because that is what has been a permit permitted so much to be produced. How did you how did Stack Deck come into existence? Because this is also one of those aspects that we don't generally get to see and hear about how companies like this get created. It, it was a big accident. Um, so uh, Prism Comics for for quite some time uh, administered a queer press grant, and we would we had a selection process, and and we would uh, evaluate the applications, and we would award a two thousand dollar grant to a promising comics creator every year, um, and that had lasted at uh, about you know by twenty fourteen, it had hit its tenth year, and we wanted to do a publication that celebrated the queer press grant. Uh, however, we uh, had a publisher lined up, um, another, another, another publisher by another former board member of Prism, Northwest Press, but they, you know, for, for, for reasons that, you know, just, they just didn't have the time and resources to publish this book. So uh, it kind of, uh, you know, it, 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 you know, it just was like, we thought the project was over and they said, well, who's going to publish this book? And so, I uh, I was uh, still at the trucking company at the time, and we had a shell corporation that was uh, it was at, at one point it was a harbor freight corporation at which I was the dispatcher in Southgate, California, um, the only non-native speaker of Spanish in the in the room, um, and uh, and um, we hadn't really used it for much of anything, but kept paying eight hundred dollars a year to keep it alive in case some use came up, and so I said. I'll be a publisher, and I went to I took I, went, I took this company. Um, I re I re uh, I re-registered it with the Secretary of State of California as a publishing company rather than a freight company, and uh, and uh, got a DBA and called it Stack Deck Press, and thus I was publisher. And so uh, um, so I uh, took it upon myself to publish Alphabet. Um, we had a successful Kickstarter for it, and. Uh, and we had quite a few people, including Iwan, who contributed to it, many of whom were former PRISM Queer Press Grant recipients. Many of those people who received the PRISM grant went on to very, um, very impressive careers um, in, in comics. Uh, Ed Luce was am among them, Steve McIsaac, uh, you know, Elizabeth Byer, you name it. Um, so so th then that... From that on, then we had uh, we taught we you know, John John helped me put together Alphabet. John seems to he's he's always at the ground he's always at the ground ground floor of a lot of this stuff. And and then we you know I got an idea from one of my partners, Lorianne, because she was into the adult coloring craze. So maybe we should do a coloring book. And uh, and I thought it would be like we could do like some sort of like little ash can kind of thing stapled together. And John said, why don't we just do a whole proper coloring book and thus the LGBTQ historical coloring book series was born with the Queer Heroes coloring book, and um, which continues to this day. And so, yeah, so it 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 has um, gone through. I go to basically go to shows. I look for people whose work I find interesting. Try to see who needs a who needs a publisher's assistance or wants it, and um, and uh, and make mental notes and uh, and and uh, and try to come up with new ideas for books. We've got. Three more books coming this year, and uh, already two on the docket for next year. So, very nice. Well, you know, I think that's a perfect place for us to take a break here, and we move into, mm -hmm. and we'll come back and move into talking about a uh, thousand and one uh, black men uh, from there. So, why don't you go? We're stay tuned, folks. This is and come back for our second half as we delve into this very brilliant and beautiful book that I we have here and its creator and, and its publisher on our second half. So I'm Perry Clark here with Tara Avery and Awan Mansi, and we'll be back shortly. Our lives and the world around us can get messy and frustrating. Untangle and Grow Counseling's focus is to untangle that mess and make sense of it so you have a good foundation to build and grow from. 
visit us on the web at untangleandgrowcounseling.com. Perry Clark offers individual psychotherapy, couples and family therapy, and adolescence therapy from a variety of coping materials and resources. Visit untangleandgrowcounseling.com for more information. You are listening to Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. If you have a question or comment about our podcast, send an email to pclark at untyingknotspodcast.com. That's pclark at untyingknotspodcast.com. And now, back to the program. Hello all, welcome back to Untying Knots, and this is the second half of our probably multi-part episode here. Uh, I'm Perry Clark, licensed marriage and family therapist here with Tara Avery and Awan Mance, better this time. And now we're going to talk a bit more about hundred and, or sorry, a thousand one uh, black mass, black men's portrait of masculinity and intersection. So I'm curious what inspired this coming together. And then we're going to talk a bit more about, uh, about some of the sections I've been able to read in the book. Well, you know, I have, you know, included Juan in a lot of, uh, a lot of my publications. I've always enjoyed her art and I've always, uh, I've always admired her comics. And uh, in my travels, I will be selling books, coloring books and anthologies featuring her work, uh, you know, alongside those of others. And um, I found myself in far flung obscure places like New York and Kansas City. And, um, you know, you know, there would be folks that would be you know, you know, you know, browsing my wares, and uh, they would see Awan's work, and they'd say, "Oh my gosh, you know, Eight Rock?" And I was like, and I immediately, I, I, you know, it took me about half a beat. That's Awan. They're talking about Awan. So when I realized that she had a following that um, extended across the country, um, I thought, you know, not only did I enjoy the, the her illustration series, but I thought this might be able to reach. A broader audience um, in book form, and uh, I just thought it it was a, an important series, and it deserved, you know, a treatment, you know, like a, an art treatment, and that also had um, other elements to it that would uh, that would that would really draw in um, maybe the the person who's not a not an arts follower, you know, other other kinds of writing. Gotcha. And I would definitely say, uh, you know, working, um, you know, Tara um, has given me some great opportunities to have my work seen uh, more widely and in the process meet some really interesting um, artists and comic creators. And um, and so when Tara approached me and said, hey, you know, um, it's probably maybe like three years ago or so, maybe more like three or four years ago, and said, that, hey, you yeah. know, I think this can be a, um, a book, I thought you know, I would love that. I had originally thought, oh, you know, I'll make a giant zine every 250 drawings. <laughs> um, that didn't happen. I made much smaller zines um, whenever I felt like it. Um, and I thought, what a great opportunity for this to be. And Tara said, and we'll have color. And I'm like, color, yay. Um, and uh, and so it was great to actually have someone who, you know, I didn't have to be um, Kehinda Wiley um, you know, famous black portrait artists, beautiful work, um, mm-hmm. very expensive work. Um, but I didn't have to be Kahinda Wiley to have a full color um, book uh, of this project that had meant so much to me. And yeah, as my partner and I were looking at it last night, he was pointing out that, oh, you can tell where you were taking sketches from people you saw uh, <laughs> at that because of the backgrounds that were in that, because he was familiar with that artist as well. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. I'm glad you picked up on that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and it's just also one of his particular liked work. So that's like, oh, you picked up, you found that. I'm thanks, son. Love you. Kisses. <laughs> but uh, I want to read a couple of passages here that are in the foreword that was originally written by Sean Taylor, uh, a senior, uh, senior fellow pop collective collaborator and member of the Nerds of Color. And he, they wrote here uh, that. Awan Mace's portrayal, or sorry, portraits of black men as they are, as who they are, in their element, in their fullness of themselves. This, to me, is revolutionary. Many depictions of blackness are hyperbolic or exalted. 
One could argue that some of these magnified images are addressed for the near constant denigration of blackness in the public sphere. Think of the majestic blackness of uh, Kindy's Wiley's. Other artists highlight, say, the complications of race and gender through near mystical folk aesthetics like Wiganchi Mutu. Awan's work is akin to stained glass. The bold black line is used to turn the image into multiple sections. Mainly, or sorry, normally when black bodies are reduced to sections, it is a method of control or dehumanization of the body, a tactic to make the body, the black body, easy to consume. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Mance's technical, Mance's technique feels more like an assemblage that portrait may feels more like an assemblage than portrait making. She carefully puts black men together in a way that honors our agency. Her sections forces the viewer to see the whole as well as the parts. The technique calls to the multidimensionalness of black male life, the life that is under and beyond the stories projected onto our skin. While all artists have baggage and bias, she seems to have kept this out of her work. Granted, there is bias in the uh, curation in the subject she chooses to present. There is also a love for the subject, not the possessive kind of love so prevalent in many kinds of art, but the love that allows you to appreciate what something is without having to force it to confront, or sorry, to, to conform to how you see the world. This is a very rare approach, especially when representing Blackness. I like that Sean Taylor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, it very much speaks to something that many people probably wouldn't even begin to process with the aspect of how we are represented. So what was, for those who eventually we want them to get the book, and in a nutshell, what inspired this work? Um, you know, I, uh, I, you know, I'm an English professor um, by profession, by, you know, my day job, so to speak, mm-hmm. and my training. And one of my main areas of research is representation. Um, and I'm particularly interested in how blackness, what blackness looks like when black people themselves do the representation. Um, but I also thinking a lot um, back in 2010, when I started my series of 1001 drawings, I was thinking about the ways that even um, mainstream black representations of African-American people are really constrained by the fact that there aren't that many s- mainstream spaces for Black people to talk about themselves. Um, and so I was looking at, a, um, you know, certainly mainstream non-Black media. Um, and particularly, I was interested in how Black men are represented in um, very excessive ways, you know, excessively athletic, excessively criminal, hypersexualized, and that that doesn't really leave room for most Black people. And then I see other kind of counter representations in Black media trying to say, you know, that's not what Black men are like. But so many of those representations are of men who are very wealthy and, you know, kind of look like supermodels in a very Mm -hmm. traditional sense um, and leave out the really kind of profundity and the beauty of everyday Black men, the people that I see when I walk around my community. And so I foolishly said to myself back in 2010, I, as a queer Black person um, in a very long-term relationship, I can draw Black men with absolute um, objective, you know, with objectivity, um, because I want nothing but for Black men to be themselves. And so I thought, I'm going to immerse myself in the subject, and I'm going to attempt to draw Black men um, on Black men's own terms without projecting any desires or um, aspirations um, onto my subjects. And so I I embarked upon this thing that I thought would take three years. Um, it ended up taking six and a half years. Um, but it came from a place of the what I saw as and continue to see as a lack of the discussion of the ways that Black men are objectified. You know, when people talk about objectification, they're talking about white women. Um, You know, I'm a child of the 70s and 80s, and I remember the Swedish bikini team selling, you know, beer during football games on, you know, televised. And people think about that, objectification of white women's bodies. But Black men's bodies are objectified, and they're used to sell ideas. They're used to sell ideas like fear, divisiveness, 
um, mm-hmm. masculinity, particular products. Um, and, and that's, if that's, and it, and it proceeds because it's unseen and unaddressed. Very much so. Cause I know there was the, um, oh, I forget exactly what year it was, but there was that one with some of the photo shoots that I think were, uh, I think it was LeBron James. Oh um, boy. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Since I admit, for those of you who like sports, I'm not a sports ball guy, so I can't remember all all of this. But I know it was one of the athletes, basketball player, and they had the aspect of him play, holding the basketball, and he had a woman on his arm that was wearing a dress that was reminiscent of a King Kong um, uh, advertisement from, I think, the 1920s. And just that what you're saying about that aspect of looking at either the dangerous or the power that something that now needs to be caged. Right, right. It was that was that was one hugely problematic um, representation um, in the 2000s, which is mm-hmm. particularly shocking. Um, and then, you know, one of the things that I will point out when I teach about black male representation is that. You know, a lot of times when you see black men depicted, often they're depicted shirtless um, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, often, you know, shirtless with shaved heads, which is a style. But mm-hmm. also, I have to think in some ways that's, you know, kind of extra bare, you know, mm-hmm. to really almost to go back to the uh, phrenology of the 19th century using, you know, the shape of the head and bumps on the head to tell, you know, if this is a really a person or not, just wanting to give the gaze on black men's bodies as much surface area as possible. Um, Mm -hmm. And, um, and it's, you know, as someone who's um, grown up around black men, you know, my dad and my brother, my dad had four brothers and um, three sisters. So I had a lot of um, aunts and uncles by birth and by marriage um, who mean a lot to me. I have six, but I have 15 first cousins, um, Mm -hmm. several of whom are African-American men and, you know, I associate black manhood and masculinity with a lot of love and safety and humor and joy. And, um, and I want to weigh in on, you know, and, and not fear. Mm -hmm. And, and I feel like that perspective um, is not, doesn't get enough air. Um, And there's also the anxiety of representation. So, you know, when black people seek to kind of create affirming art, which is very beautiful. Um, A lot of it, you know, there's a beautiful sentiment behind it, but then I'm also concerned about the black men who don't get to be seen because they don't necessarily show up as say positive representations. And Mm -hmm. so I was, I was trying and it, it was the learning curve for me, but Mm -hmm. I was trying to include the full range of people, including the people who don't necessarily show up as, you know, our talented 10th <laughs> right right well it's very much the aspect of everyone who's actually in between the aspect of the like you said supermodel gq to the ones who are being villainized as our criminals where there's a space in between where the rest of us live yeah right yeah you know everyday people mm-hmm mm-hmm and in that space is, comes the aspect of how do we live and how are we seen? So let's go to one of the sections and chapters in the book. And since this all came about because of Comic-Con, let's go to the section on nerds. This is particularly black nerds. <laughs> so this was a part of one of, because I should also point out that on many of these chapters are your interviews with some of your subjects uh, as well. And so this particular section is an interview with London Smith. And this is what, that's what black nerd is like is the section and this is um i think his i think it's his portrait is number 366 uh but one of the questions you asked was how would you define a black nerd what does that label mean to you and one of his responses was uh, let's see here i think that's when you're talking about black nerds you're often talking about a kid who kids who are fighting to break out of the box of what blackness means to a lot of people. And in doing so, they're saying, I'm interested in these things over here that people say black folks aren't supposed to be interested in. For some reason, things like comic books or certain types of gaming aren't associated with black kids. As a black nerd, you're constantly fighting against the tiny box that defines what blackness should be, but you're also fighting to fit into it. Or it might be more accurate to say you're fighting to accept to be accepted into it. 
the nerd box, even though the stereotypes is that black people aren't interested in gaming, comic books, and other aspects of geek and nerd culture. It's almost as though you're trying to get out of one box just to be in another one. That's what a black nerddom is like. Yeah. And Landon um, was one of my students um, when he was a master's student at at Mills College and is a poet um, and a professor Mm -hmm. um, now. And I think one of the best things about his story, which I did not know until I interviewed him many years after he, you know, he's gone on and built this great career, um, is that he was a division one football player Mm -hmm. at the University of Michigan. I was shocked. Um, and um, and in some ways, that's where he found his footing as a black nerd, um, because one of the other football players also liked to geek out with video games with him. And, um, you know, the idea of, you know, this, you know, there are a lot of black nerds. Um, mm-hmm. It's a huge, proud community <laughs> growing mm-hmm. every day. Um, and yet this idea of what blackness is, is black is black ain't. What is blackness supposed to be? What is it not supposed to be? Um, and, you know, um, as a, as a, you know, former, you know, honor student in high school and all that jazz, um, you know, at a very white high school, I was very accustomed to uh, classmates telling me that what I was doing was not what black people did. Um, mm-hmm. And that kind of projection comes from both outside and inside. I experienced it mostly from white students, but the notion of increase, you know, making visible all the nuanced ways, there is no wrong way to be black. And what I love about black nerds is that they um, kind of openly defiantly hold both of these things. They are, they're doing nerd all the way but they refuse to do it without bringing that lens of being black. And it's just exhilarating um, to see. It's one of the things I love about Comic-Con. There are so many black people at Comic-Con. Oh, yes. Um, I was noticing that too. You know, probably, you know, um, you know, thousands of black nerds in the same place um, Mm -hmm. year after year. And I just think it's, I think it's wonderful. And what I love is, you know, the love that black nerds have for each other, um, mm-hmm. you know, the t-shirts, the different things people are cosplaying as the different ways, you know, Oh, the green, black and red Spider-Man, you know, mm-hmm. and when Miles Morales showed up as Spider-Man, oh, yeah. you know, there, that was, you know, the costume of the year, um, not to mention black Panther. I mean, mm-hmm. but um, you know, just, you know, the book is the project was trying to, it was just me trying to draw a whole bunch of black people, um, mm-hmm. black men um, from their various, all the places where black men show up, which is pretty much everywhere. But as time over time, I started to realize I was really focusing on those black folks who don't get a lot of publicity, but there are mm-hmm. a lot of, there are a lot of old black men. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of queer and trans black men. And there are a lot of black men who are nerds and mm-hmm. they never show up on the news. Very few people do uh, TV shows about black men who are nerds. Um, you know, what would have happened if big bang theory had a black man? among those main characters mm-hmm. um, it would have transformed a lot of people's perceptions um yeah well and not even to how they treated the indian character on there as well which they're just like stuff is like you know you could have done more you didn't have to be the set piece i mean you've made such an effort of giving all these other guys relationships that worked to some degree and he doesn't he's still sitting there without a relationship yeah yeah i never understood why 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 that happened yeah let alone they had a perfect opportunity to say that maybe part of a reason his relationships weren't working is could have been he could have actually been queer that would have been a nice turn exactly because i mean there's also that aspect of what does a queer nerd look like right Right. Well, that that speaks to the importance of queer folks and people of color to write their own stories mm-hmm. um that um, if you leave it to corporate entities, um, they're going to do what they feel will maximize their viewing audience. And if they have any indication or, or a pre- preconceived notion as to what will turn people off and send them away, it doesn't make it in. And it doesn't make it in until we prove them wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that was both a theme, I will say, that Sean was talking about in his interview. And just for also for transparency's sake, we're recording this right now at the about mid-August. So this is actually going to air in December. Um, 
<laughs> and the episode that is actually op- airing right now on for my podcast is with uh, uh, with is with Mercedes Salmudio, who is listed in Why Wakanda Matters, the uh, psychological uh, anthology, talking about the aspect of the Oreo and what it means to be a black geek for a, especially for a female growing up as well. So there is definitely a subject matter where we're. I think it's linking in spirit. And so I make mention of this now. So folks, if you want to go back and listen to that one, as you continue to listen to this one, it's an aspect of what does it mean for us to be black nerds? And uh, equally, uh, one of the other interviews that you're probably hearing at around October Halloween is with uh, B. Dave Walters, who, as I was talking to him, he and uh, Damien Portier started Talk to Your Black Geek Friend on um geek and sundry and which was the only thing that actually caused me to finally get a twitch subscription so i could watch that and talking about just how much normalizing that sense of our connection with geekdom and that is normal for us i mean and as we often see during pride month or not uh black pride month how many of our, the technologies we're using today especially the cell phone is because of black genius and black nerds are integral to U.S. culture. It's one of the things I love about February. Um, you know, uh, it was started by a black nerd for Black History Month. Mm-hmm. You know, as as Negro History Week, and um, and uh, you know, just being out. You know, there's you know one of the things about Landon Smith in uh, the Thousand and One Black Men book is that um, he talks about this kind of coming out as a black nerd process. And when we talk about coming out. Um, you know, identities that are unexpected and for which you may experience rejection, um, queer mm-hmm. and trans identities, non-binary identities, but they can also be very raced. And for Black people, um, there is, and sometimes, sometimes there is a fear of rejection uh, when you out yourself as a, as a Black nerd, um, mm-hmm. less so today than, say, 30, 40 years ago, um, um, you know, with huge um, receptive Black culture, prominent Black nerds in in media but still um locally it can be it could be uh, it could be a thing exactly and uh let's hear there's another passage here that i know gets into that give me just a second i think it's this one uh he says i'm teaching a class that appropriate that approaches black fiction through a critical lens and i try to emphasize that what that whether it's a historical fiction or futurism, our stories are tied to our own realities. So when you talk about black futurism, black sci-fi and speculative fiction, these stories are connected to the hope and the experiences that we want to be able to tell or share or embody. I think that creating these stories is a liberatory practice, whether for the individual artists creating it for themselves or for the community. I believe the practice of that of of creating these stories enables us to be able to imagine outside of the parameters that we've been given and the structures imposed on us socially as black people. Yeah, you know, the imposition of images either by people who are not black or by black people in order to create more access, um, you know, I guess I, I, I don't use the phrase respectability politics often because I think some of it is, you know, kind of a misunderstanding of some aspects of Black history. But I will say the notion there is sometimes the notion that some some things have to be represented in a particular way in order for people to be safe, in order for people to have access to a particular space. And, um, you know, um, in some ways, my project was to try to leave space for other forms of meaning um, mm-hmm. for without projecting onto black men what they should be. Um, I didn't want to be part of that problem, which happens every day. Um, you know, black men have a very high level of visibility in society. Black women, the problem for um, black women and non-binary folks is invisibility. Um, and as a result, not having your needs met, not having your needs recognized as needs um, or being told, actually, that's not a need for you. But mm-hmm. the hyper visibility of Black men means, um, and, you know, U.S. society and, frankly, um, the, you know, the global Anglosphere um, is hyper interested in Black men and Black men's bodies and subjectivity and just, you know, invests Black manhood and masculinity with whatever 
the larger society needs at a given time. Mm -hmm. If they need something to be afraid of, if during, say, Super Bowl season, they need something to celebrate, um, you know, um, and and I often wonder, I'm I'm very humbled by the experience of the Black men I depicted, um, because I don't, you know, I, you know, as someone who was assigned female at birth, I don't know what it is like to experience the wages of hypervisibility growing up inside that set of expectations. Um, so it was a really interesting exercise for me to try to depict Black men without projection and with a respect for a path that I have not walked. Beautifully put. And I think that's a perfect place for us to take our, our break here as we move in so that we can have our second half, which will be coming roughly two weeks after this episode. So for those of you who only have a chance to listen to this episode, where can people find you if they want to basically connect? Well, you can find 1001 Black Men at stackeddeckpress.com. Um, you can find um, posts relating to 1001 Black Men and other Stack Deck Press publications at our Facebook page or also at Twitter at Stack Deck Press minus the finally. There's a limit on characters in your, uh, in your Twitter handle. Um, and then on Instagram at Stack Deck Press. Um, and for my own individual uh, stuff, my own art, you can find that at Tara M. Avery Art on Instagram. And uh, Prism Comics, um, uh, the organization for which I work, the nonprofit, um, can be found at prismcomics.org. Okay, we'll make sure to have all those links in the show notes as well. And what uh, about can, for you? You can find uh, me at awanmance.com. Um, and on awanmance.com, I link to the actual 1001 Black Men online project. So you can see the individual posts over the years and um, also links to my social media, especially Twitter and Instagram. So uh, awanmance.com. All righty. So I'm Perry Clark, licensed marriage and family therapist uh, here with Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. So I'm going to really suggest you come back for part two as we continue this discussion. But otherwise, if you have only been able to have a chance to listen to this one, I hope you have enjoyed it. And please share and like, and uh, we'll be back for more. Stay tuned, folks. Thank you for tuning in for Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. Be sure to join your host, Perry Clark, for another episode on the podcast coming soon on the Voice America Empowerment Channel.